listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Welcome to another episode of Let the Bible Speak. And today we're resuming our studies in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We've been noting how the Lord has given direction through Paul to the church as he gives these instructions to his son in the faith, Timothy. I want to read today from the third chapter and from the verse number 14, where the word of God says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Let's bow together as we contemplate the word of God afresh today. Eternal God and our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is so plain and direct regarding the conduct of the Church of Christ. We pray that you would use these meditations to edify your people and also to challenge those who do not know you, that they would consider Christ the subject of the Scriptures. They would come to love him and join into fellowship with him as part of the Church of Jesus Christ. So bless our studies now, we pray, to each and every hearer in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God's providence superintends all of our plans. There are times in our lives that we may have uh, certain things purposed and planned, but it is the Lord's providence that directs our plans. Paul experienced that in his ministry. There were times when it was his desire to do something, but the Lord prevented that from coming to pass. We can't be certain whether Paul's desire to visit Ephesus was realised, but we do know that in God's providence, the delay of his visit ensured that this letter was written for the good of churches even today. Verse 14 of this third chapter says, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly, but if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. This letter carries the authority of the person Paul hadn't visited, but his letter carried the weight of a visit. This, by the way, is an indication of the apostolic authority of the New Testament scriptures, that though we do not have apostles today, the apostles of the first century bring their authority and their weight to us through the word of God. The letter of Paul carried the same authority as if Paul had visited in person. And as he writes to Timothy, he gives instructions regarding the matter of church conduct. Again, I've said before that people often think that this is not very important. Surely we should have the freedom to express ourselves how we please. But that was not so in the mind of Paul. And this entire letter gives such clear instructions regarding the conduct of a New Testament church. 
But as we read uh, these closing verses of chapter 3, they give us a tremendous insight into the doctrine of the New Testament church. What Paul refers to as the house of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And I want to just to outline some of the things that these verses teach us regarding the subject of the New Testament church. First of all, let's note the identity of the church. Paul speaks of it giving a couple of, of different terms. He refers to it as the house of God, and then he refers to it as the church of the living God. The house of God. The word that's used there is a word that can denote the household. It's used that way, actually, in this very chapter, where Paul, in giving the instructions for the qualities of the elder, says, If a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? And, of course, there the house in view is not the building in which the man lives. It's a reference to the people within that household. In a similar fashion, in Acts 18, verse number 8, it refers to Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and how he believed on the Lord with all his house. The same word that's used here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. The house referring to the people, the, the household. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says how he baptised also the household of Stephanus. And so when Paul refers to the church as the house of God, he's referring to the church as the family of God. What a important thing that is for us to understand today. Our identity as New Testament believers must govern our conduct. And when we meet together as a New Testament church, what we are should determine how we behave ourselves. And when we come together as a New Testament church, it is vital that we remember the fact that we are a family of God. We exist as a household of God. God is our Father and we exist as brothers and sisters within the family. That's an important principle when you come to think about the matter of of church unity and church conduct. But Paul also, in giving the identity of the church, he refers to the church as the church of the living God. The word for church used in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, is the word ecclesia. It's a commonly used word in the New Testament for the, the New Testament church. It's the word that we get our word ecclesiology from, which speaks of the study of the church. But the word itself in its original setting in the time of the New Testament denotes an assembly. It's translated in Acts chapter 19 Uh, with regards to the events in Ephesus, where it says, for the assembly was confused. The word that's used there is this word, ecclesia. It speaks of the church as a gathering, an assembling of people, assembled out of the rest of humanity. The church is referred to by Peter in 1 Peter 2 as a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, And holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Uh, Paul's understanding of the church is that the church is a family gathering. It is a group of people who assemble together as a family. Now, of course, sin in this world affects our view of family. But in the family, there ought to be mutual care and compassion and interest. And the church is a company of the redeemed. 
Paul here is not addressing the universal church, the company of all those who have been saved in all of history. But he's speaking to a local church, a collective assembly of the redeemed, of the saved. And within that company, there ought to be this family dynamic as they gather together. They do so with the atmosphere of care and compassion and interest. There should be a desire amongst the redeemed to assemble. It is wonderful to say that you trust in Christ Jesus. But in the New Testament, those who trust in Christ Jesus willingly desire to gather and assemble together. Paul in Hebrews chapter 10 speaks about not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. So perhaps you're listening to this program today and you're not part of a New Testament church, but but you say that you trust in Christ Jesus. Let me me teach you from the word of God today that as a believer of Christ, it it should be your desire to gather together with those of like precious faith. And I would encourage you to do so and make plans to do so even today. But having noticed the identity of the church, note secondly the dignity of the New Testament church. The terms that Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 3 in the verse 15, they give us a very elevated view of the church. The church is not something to be despised. It shouldn't be treated with disrespect even in the thinking of the people of God. The church, according to Paul, belongs to God and is being built by God. Paul refers to it as the church of the living God. There were many temples in Paul's day, pagan temples. He's writing to Timothy in Ephesus, and in Ephesus there was the temple to Diana. The church belongs to the one true and living God, not to a God that is of man's imagination, but the living God. Christians are those who have turned to God from idols to serve the true and the living God. And that living God has a church that carries his name. Yes, the local church here is in view. The dignity of the company of the saints who meet in Christ's name. They are the church that belongs to the living God. What dignity that gives us when we gather together in fellowship. The the one true and living God has set his love upon us and we are his possession. He cares for us. The Lord is not careless with his possession. He, He loves us and preserves us and will guard us and protect us. We need not fear what man can do unto us when we belong to God. Sometimes children are very careless with their possessions Uh, They get a new toy and uh, within a couple of days that new toy is lying discarded in a corner somewhere. Uh, But God is careful to preserve and keep his possessions. And when the church is referred to as a church of the living God, it greatly encourages us that we will be kept by the power of God. The church is also being built by God. The word house here that's used can also speak of construction. And that has the idea of the church being made by God for God. Paul, Ephesians chapter 2 and the verse number 22, describes the believers as being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. 
We're built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. God is building his church. And he's building it in such a way that he dwells within the church. The temple imagery is used by Paul. And the temple in the thought of that time was the place where God came and dwelt in a special fashion. What dignity there is that when the people of God meet together, they meet together and God is in the midst. And it must be our desire that as we fellowship together in the people of God, that we would not grieve the Spirit of God. The Lord is present and that is something to treasure. And therefore we must be careful that we do not grieve the Spirit of God in our worship. God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Second Corinthians chapter 6 verse 16. And as he said so, he says that we are the temple of the living God. And so the dignity of the church is taught here by Paul as the local church is referred to as belonging to God and being built by God. Now, I, at this point, I must be clear that this is not true of everybody that calls themselves a church. There are certain qualifications that govern our understanding of what a church is. But if, for the sake of this study, we consider the church to be those who are faithful to the doctrine of Christ, faithful to the preaching of the word of God, faithful to the practice of church discipline, then we see that such a body that is orthodox and careful regarding the holding of truth, such a body is belonging to God and is being built by God and thus ought to have great dignity in our mind and our understanding. Now, as I speak of orthodoxy and truth, that leads us immediately on to the next thought in our consideration today. Having noticed the identity of the church and the dignity of the church, note the responsibility of the church. For Paul refers to the local church as the pillar and ground of the truth. I don't want to go into the detail of this at this time, but notice that Paul believes that there is such a thing as the truth. And the church is referred to as the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, this is not a proof text for a Roman Catholic dogma regarding the nature of the church. From the Roman Catholic perspective, truth comes from the church. The church will define truth by papal decree and tradition. The pillar here rather speaks of the means for displaying the grandeur of the building. We are, as a church, to display the grandeur of the truth. The pillar and the ground whereby the ground is a buttress, uh, not part of the building's foundation, but part of its supporting structure. A buttress, it helps to stabilize the walls and the pillars of a large building. In the same way, the Church of Christ helps to hold the truth steadily. The apostles and prophets, they're referred to in Ephesians 2 as the foundation, Christ being the chief cornerstone. And the church then is to defend and display that truth. The church does not govern that truth, does not assert what that truth is, but rather displays that truth for the world to admire and to see, and indeed for the world to come to trust. The Roman Catholic Church erroneously exalts the power of the church, but at the same point we must not undermine the church. We must appreciate that the task is entrusted to the church 
to be those who earnestly contend for the faith that is once and for all delivered to the saints. And so, when we think about the responsibility of the church, note that this matter of truth is confessional truth. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Paul, having stated the church as the pillar and ground of the truth, then goes on to state what that truth is in verse number 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. This is confessional truth. There are some interesting features regarding this text. The form in some of the original manuscripts indicate rhyme and rhythm. And so there are some who suggest this may well have been an early New Testament hymn. But when it speaks of these truths being without controversy, they speak of truths that have been agreed upon. And so it seems this is an early statement of faith. We shouldn't underestimate the importance and benefit of having a statement of faith that governs our unity and sets out truth. Denominationally, we hold to what is known as the Westminster Confession of Faith. It is a statement of those things that we agree upon, based upon the Word of God. We would say without controversy, with all agreement, we confess these things, and we do so, we believe, in light of a passage such as this, that indicates that even in the New Testament church, there was confessional truth agreed. It is truth that is confessional, and truth that has been revealed. It's referred to as the mystery of godliness. Paul used this term mystery in several places to indicate truth that cannot be discovered by natural man, but is revealed by the Spirit of God to man. It is confessional truth, revealed truth, practical truth. It is the mystery of godliness. These truths, they they lead to good Christian conduct. Good doctrine should always produce good conduct. That is a principle in the word of the Lord. The orthodontist, well, when you go to see the orthodontist, you you want a good smile. Uh, But the orthodontist wants to make sure you have a good, correct bite. Straight teeth, that's the purpose of the orthodontist. And the church is concerned with orthodoxy, straight teaching. And we certainly want people to have a good theological bite, but also to have a pleasant theological smile. We want those who know the word of God to value their Christian conduct so that what they understand in their minds works itself out in their lives in the form of Christian piety and what Paul refers to here as godliness. So the truths that the church displays and holds and defends are truths that are confessional, they are revealed, they are practical, and they are Christological. And what I mean by that is that the New Testament church exalts those truths that centre upon the person of Christ Jesus. The early church exalted Christ. Their confession of faith was that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the words of verse number 16, well, they can be broken up in in various ways. But they summarize Christ's ministry and they follow a time sequence. God was manifest in the flesh. It speaks of Christ's incarnation. The word became flesh. God 
takes on a true human nature. The man Jesus pre-existed as the second person of the Trinity. God sent his Son, the Son that was co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. And as the Son comes into the world, he takes to himself that which he did not have without losing anything that he always was. The Word was God, and the Word became flesh. In your own time, you could read Philippians chapter 2, and you will see how that the humiliation of the Son of God is a humiliation not by emptying himself of his deity, but by taking to himself a true humanity. And so Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. He, he manifests, he displays God to men, and he takes our likeness that he would be our saviour. And so the Son of God, manifest in the flesh, is said to be justified in the Spirit. This speaks of the Lord's vindication. He is declared to be the righteous one. The Lord's identity is confirmed at his baptism. It is confirmed at the time of his transfiguration. And it's also confirmed especially in his resurrection. Where Romans 1 tells us he was declared to be the Son of God of power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The Lord Jesus, as he walked on this earth, receives divine vindication of his person and of his work. He's manifest in the flesh and justified or vindicated in the spirit. The text also speaks of observation. He was seen of angels. 1 Peter 1, Peter tells us which things the angels desire to look into. The angelic host is present throughout the Lord's ministry. We read of it at his birth. We read of angels being present at his temptation in the wilderness. And also angels being present in the garden. We also, of course, especially see angels being present at the tomb at the time of Christ's triumphant resurrection. Oh, he was seen of angels. And they saw his humiliation and they were the witnesses of his exaltation. Oh, the Lord is greater than the angels, according to Hebrews chapter 1. And yet he is lower than the angels in our likeness, as he takes our humanity. And so this confessional statement says that God is manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels. We then read of his proclamation. Christ was preached unto the Gentiles, before his ascension, he gives this commission to the church. And thus we see that the early church was evangelically minded, that they had received the truth of God and it was their responsibility to preach Christ unto the world. And so as he's preached unto the Gentiles and that commission is given before his ascension, so we read of his reception. The success of the proclamation is guaranteed he is believed on in the world. And that guarantee is there before again his ascension. He is believed on and will be believed on. There is no doubt of the success of Christ's ministry. As he ascends to glory, he gives the commission to the apostles to preach him into all nations. And as they preach him in all nations, they do so with the confidence that he has all power and all authority. Therefore, they have the certainty that as they preach him, preach Christ to the nations, the souls will believe in him and they will become disciples of him. 
And so in the last place, as we think our way through this confession of truth, he is said to be received up into glory. He is the ascended Lord. He, he has left this scene of time for a season. He's gone to the presence of his father and he's preparing a place for his people. We see that he is the one who in his ascension has guaranteed the success of the proclamation of his name in the world. And so as the New Testament church, they confess his ministry, they consider his ministry in terms of these historical events and the facts concerning his ministry, manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. This was the Christ that they exalted. The early church, in their living and in their conduct as the family of God, as the building of God, they centered their thoughts on Christ Jesus. It was their delight to exalt and to praise and proclaim his name in the church and to the world. And so as we glean the benefit of Paul's letter to Timothy, may it remind us again of the centrality of Christ in the life and the witness and the conduct of the church. It is our privilege to confess him, to believe on him and to proclaim him unto the world. For there is salvation in none other. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. It is only in the name of Jesus Christ that souls are saved. And it's only in the name of Christ that we have been saved. And so we worship him, we praise him, and we proclaim him to a lost world. And so as I close today, I, I ask you two questions. Have you come to trust in this Christ? Is he your Lord and Saviour? And secondly, are you part of a family of God's people, locally, where Christ is central, that he has the preeminence, that he is praised and exalted in all the conduct of the church? Such a church is for the glory of his name, and it is for the benefit of the society, the benefit of the people of God. And may the Lord bless his word to our souls today. Amen. Let's pray together. Eternal God and our Father in heaven, bless your word and encourage all who hear and may we all seek Christ as the first in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.